Sweat poured from his forehead, and John wiped it away with his free hand. With his other hand, he operated the Norden bomb sight. He had already dialed the bomber's altitude and speed, so the rest was up to autopilot. This top-secret Norden bombsite had to be delivered to each plane before the mission with an armed military escort. It was a highly sought-after secret the U.S. military had been able to keep from the Germans and Japanese. All around him, the rest of the B-24 looked like an anthill on fire. The waste gunners were pounding away at their targets. The pilot and co-pilot were trying to keep the airplane aloft and flew at a deadly low altitude in order to avoid the death wave of German anti-aircraft guns. Shrapnel and debris from other planes peppered and rained down on them. A B-24 at their tail erupted in an orange fireball, and another to their right had to make an emergency crash landing. It was utter chaos and mayhem. Almost there, almost there, John thought out loud to no one in particular. As it was, his voice wouldn't have been heard over the concophony of terror. His years of training and numerous combat sorties had made him one of the senior members of the young crew. Months before, when the 515th started training for this suicide mission, John and his best friend Edwin, the pilot, had already determined that they weren't going to make it back from this one. Together, they had already hit many railway targets and munitions factories. Once, they had lost half of their tail when a German fighter tried to crash into them. Right on cue, the bomb sites indicated it was 30 seconds to go time. John then obtained the wind strength and direction and programmed it into the bomb site along with the bombing type. The bomb site then calculated the path based on this information, corrected the plane's speed, altitude, and heading using the autopilot function. Once everything was properly in place, the B-24 dropped its payload on the target. John was one of the best bombardiers in the wing. It was said that he could put bombs into a pickle barrel. Through the bomb site, he watched as the instruments of death pummeled the oil fields below. This podcast is about heroes in military and law enforcement. Some gave their service for America and served in the armed forces. Some have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, and others protected the local community and died in the line of duty. Our lives would be a whole lot different if it weren't for the hard work and sacrifice of these brave men and women. They could have gone on to live lives that were less dangerous. However, they dedicated themselves to your protection. If you ever have the pleasure of talking to one of them, they'll tell you, I'm not a hero but I have the honor of walking beside a few. Others will say, the real heroes are those who didn't make it back home. This episode is dedicated to U.S. Army Air Corps Lieutenant John F. Cummings, World War II. John was a bombardier on the 515th Squadron, 376th Bomb Group Heavy. John Frederick Cummings was born on May 1st, 1918 in Denver, Colorado. He was the firstborn of Irish immigrants John and Elizabeth and grew up in the Westwood Irish neighborhood of Denver with his family that included his younger sister Betty. The Cummings lived comfortably in a brick house that was built by his father who worked at a barber shop. After high school graduation, John spent two additional years in school and had his sights set on becoming a commercial artist to design advertising logos for local businesses. Instead, he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps on March 25, 1942. 
After several years of training, he graduated as a bombardier for a B-24 Liberator. John was eventually assigned to the infamous 376 Bomb Group, which was the first heavy bomb group based in Europe and the oldest to operate overseas. The 376th was originally conceived to respond to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The group was reorganized on October 31, 1942, and took on a new name that was more fitting to the B-24, the Liberandos. The heavy bomb group was fully formed by early 1943 and was comprised of four squadrons. John belonged to the 515th Squad and flew with his pilot, First Lieutenant Edwin Gluck, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The 376th immediately got to work and began operating in the Middle East theater, fixing their sights on access supply lines that ran between Italy and North Africa. They also bombed airfields and shipping operations along the coastline. After more experience, the 376 extended their long arm of destruction that included raids against oil refineries, railway depots, and munitions factories in Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. The U.S. Army Air Corps required their flyboys to participate in 25 missions before they were offered a rotation to go home for some rest and relaxation. Because of the heavy fighting and mass casualties among the bombing crews, few made it to the coveted 25 mission mark. However, John completed a total of 50 such combat missions during the course of the war. Among them was the famous Operation Tidal Wave, Operation Tidal Wave was an air mission conducted by B-24 Liberators based out of Benghazi, Libya. The targets were made up of nine oil refineries around Ploiesti, Romania on August 1, 1943. Ploiesti lay 35 miles north of Bucharest, the capital city of Romania. It was one of the most significant oil refineries that supplied Nazi Germany with fuel to operate their war machines. Ploiesti was also known as Hitler's gas station, probably because they produced one-third of the Reich's oil supply. There were no Allied bases in England that could reach Ploiesti that was located in the far southeast region of Europe by the Black Sea. However, there was a possibility that bases in Syria could reach the oil fields. There had already been an attempt at taking out the oil field by a small number of B-24s from the Halverston Project, New plans were then underway to include 1,751 men who operated 178 B-24s led by Brigadier General Uzal Ent. Usually, U.S. bombers operated at extremely high altitudes in order to be out of reach from heavy ground defenses. However, according to these plans, the Liberators would take off from Benghazi, Libya and fly at low altitudes with no fighter escort in order to avoid German radar. When they arrived on target, they would drop time-delayed bombs over the nine unsuspecting refineries. However, the Germans were ready for such an air assault, and had previously fortified the city with anti-aircraft guns hidden in empty buildings, inside rail cars, and even camouflaged by haystacks. There were also three Luftwaffe flying squadrons made up of Messerschmitt BF-109s and BF-110s that were stationed close to city limits. At the beginning of the operation, the Liberators flew in radio silence as to not be detected by the Germans. The lack of communication became evident when the formations didn't arrive simultaneously. One plane even lost its way because of the visibility problems of cloud cover. 
The remaining bombers continued over the Balkans at 11,000 feet. By the time they arrived near Ployest, 11 bombers had either been lost, crashed, or taken wrong turns. Radio silence had to be broken in order to steer additional aircraft back into the formation. German radio operators had already notified fighters of the impending attack, and the Luftwaffe was already airborne to receive the B-24s. The B-24s finally arrived, one group from the north and another from the south. Their attack was very accurate, precise, and bloody. Pitch black smoke towered to the sky in thick, impenetrable columns. Later on, witnesses who took in the devastating sight named the day Black Sunday. During the attack, the many concealed German anti-aircraft guns began wrecking havoc on the low-flying American bombers. Some men inside the bombers remembered the sounds like branches and metal hitting the outsides of their planes. These were debris fields from other bombers who had been hit and broken apart by the German guns. After the bombing campaign was completed, the remaining bombers attempted to flee to the south in small groups or in single lines of debilitated planes. They were soon followed by the German fighters who were intent on delivering payback. Some of the bombers were obliterated and broke up in midair. Others crashed into nearby fields and exploded into fireballs or disappeared into the sea. The lucky ones who couldn't make it back to Libya sought sanctuary in the nearby neutral country of Turkey and were offered shelter. Five medals of honor were awarded as a result of the mission. Three of them were received posthumously. Two of these were given to Lieutenant Colonel Addison Baker and his co-pilot, Major John Gerstad, who flew their crippled plane higher in order to give their crew an opportunity to safely bail out. Their plan, however, failed. The third posthumous Medal of Honor was awarded to pilot Lieutenant Lloyd Herbert Hughes. After his bomber was critically damaged, he intentionally crashed it into its target. The other Medal of Honors were awarded to the two leaders of the mission, Colonels John Kane and Leon Johnson. The mastermind who had planned the entire operation, Colonel Jacob Smart, later became a POW when his bomber exploded over Austria during a mission on May 10, 1944. He spent the remainder of World War II in a POW camp and was later released after VE Day. Despite the strategic planning of many military commanders, the results of Operation Tidal Wave were disappointing. Only 88 of the original 117 planes arrived back in Libya after the 2,400-mile mission, many of them with severe damage. The operation had claimed the lives of over 300 men, and an additional 108 fell into enemy hands. As a result, the attack destroyed 40% of the oil refinery, which halted almost 4 million tons of production. These losses were only temporary, however, and the facilities were soon repaired within months. The new improvements allowed the Ployest oil fields to perform past their previous capacity. Hitler's gas station continued to operate and quench the thirst of the Luftwaffe until the Soviets captured it on August of 1944. No repeated low-fying operation was attempted by the Allies against German oil refineries, and Operation Tidal Wave was ultimately considered as a failure to some. However, it could be argued that during the short delay in oil production, the Allies were able to acquire a foothold in Europe that led to their eventual victory in 1945. In addition to the five Medals of Honor and multiple Distinguished Service Crosses awarded to crew members following the operation, 
One Distinguished Service Cross was handed out to John F. Cummings on September 1st, 1943, along with oak leaf clusters, meaning he had received other consecutive awards of the same merit. Now a first lieutenant, Cummings returned home for arrest early in 1944 and was later assigned to pilot training at Goodfellow Field, San Angelo, Texas. Goodfellow was one of the premier training bases for pilots before they were assigned to their respective squadrons and headed out to fight against the Japanese or Axis powers during World War II. By the end of the war, over 10,000 men had filtered through the training facilities there. While at Goodfellow, John trained as a test pilot, most likely for one of the large multi-engine piston or turboprop aircraft, either the AT-6 Texan or the T-28 Trojan. On July 21st, 1945, John died in a plane crash during a takeoff. He was not married and did not have any children. He was only 27 years old. As a commemoration, the Cummings Prather VFW posts number 193 located on Morrison Street and Sheridan Boulevard in Denver, Colorado, was named after him. In a newspaper article titled, Wrought Iron Lamps Donated to St. Rose's, it stated that John and Elizabeth Cummings donated the lamps to Valverde Parish in memory of their son, John F. Cummings. He was eventually laid to rest with his parents in Denver, Colorado, after they died in 1970. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Remember My Name podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at RememberMyNamePodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at RememberMyNamePodcast and Twitter at RMNPodcast. So take a moment and remember this name, John F. Cummings. <laughs>